0: Welcome to the Wine of the Times podcast. It's me, Joe Wodzak, talking to you on behalf of Coach and a series on lots of delicious wines from the south of France. Today, my guest needs no real introduction. He's written a fantastic book on the subject recently. We have Matt Walsk. Uh, welcome, Matt. Hello, Joe. Thank
1: you. How nice to be talking to
0: you. Last year, we talked about Coach Gironde-Village, talking about those appellations which are sort of like near cult status, those villages in Côte-Gérôme which produce particularly special results. Um, and they're largely unknown by consumers outside France, but but really deserve to have a bigger audience.
1: Absolutely, yeah. And uh, we're going to be touching on some of those same uh, villages today, I think, and probably bringing in some new ones.
0: Oh, fantastic. I grew up thinking of cote as there was two big red wines in France. There was Bordeaux and cote in terms of volume anyway. And And, and as a young drinker, I could afford those wines, right? (laughs) Um, um, But uh, there's so much diversity and uh, it'd be quite nice to talk about the variety of different wines you can get there and how well they drink both young and old, the kind of foods they'd go with. You've sent me five wines. We've got some white here, we've got some rosé, we've got some red.
1: How about we start with one of the white wines? You know, I think when a lot of people thinking about wines, wines of the Rhone uh, and, and Cope de Rhone in particular, often they immediately start thinking about red wine, which isn't surprising, really, because, you know, I mean, they do make huge amounts of red wine. You know, the largest part of um, of the production is red, but the white wines can be fantastic and can be a little bit overlooked. So it is something that I kind of wanted to talk about a little bit today, flag up today, and taste with you today. So what's the white wine that you've got there? I've got two, actually. uh, But the one I've picked up is Baron de Montfaucon,
0: Cote Gironde 2019. So it's got a little bit of bottle age on it. Mm -hmm. And it says here on the back that it's an assemblage, or to you and me, a blend, of old claret vines with Viognier and Grenache Blanc, which is very interesting.
1: Yeah, claret for me is is one of the, probably for me, it's the emblematic grape variety of the Southern Rhone. Um, they grow a lot of a lot of white grapes down in the Southern Rhone, particularly Viognier, Grenache Blanc, Marsan, Roussan. But Viognier, Marsan, and Roussan often more connected with the Northern Rhone. But in the Southern Rhone, Grenache Blanc and then Claret and Bourboulanc, those are the three for me, which really express the Southern Rhone.
0: What is it about those particular varieties which which shows such a different face to northern Rhone
1: white? Well, I think what I like about them is that they have this richness and this generosity you know that you really feel like you're in the in the hot south here because the grapes are so beautifully ripe and the flavors are so ripe they're so rounded and the, and, the, and so so juicy <laughs> and they each of them kind of bring a little bit of something different to the table so Grenache Blanca for me it's a bit like the canvas really it's the most widely planted white grape and almost all blends will, will have a little bit of Grenache Blanc in them from, from, from Cote de Rhone.
0: Well, you're making me very, very thirsty. Um, <laughs> I've just poured myself a little glass of Baron de Montfaucon. Um, going back to Claret, I, mean, I agree with you. I think that it's certainly not a beginner's grape variety, is it? I mean, once, once you're learning about wines of the world, maybe you're doing your WSCT course, Claret isn't the great first grape variety you're going to hear about.
1: No, not at all.
0: But when, but, but when you first discover it, and I discovered it, I think drinking a wine called Chateau Simone back in the day, and Claret... Was the first variety where I realized really quite strikingly, wines have flavor and smell, but they also have a texture, just like any other food. Yeah. and clarets is the epitome of like a duvet in the mouth. Yes. It's so fluffy and soft and open and and in the, in those hot environments where you're not likely to get high acid in your wine because the grapes get so ripe in replacement of that you get this incredible texture.
1: That's exactly it and and that's um, often the, the, the word that comes to my mind when I drink Claret is kind of pillowy or kind of like petal soft you know it has this softness and this kind of slight silkiness. Oh that's delicious and it, it can be a gorgeous variety you're right about the acidity being quite low and the funny thing about claret is that people often say, oh, it's very fresh. So when I drink claret, well, at least when I started drinking claret, I was expecting it to the acidity to be quite high because that's often what people think about when they talk about freshness. But in fact, the acidity is low, but the aromatic freshness, the freshness, the florality of the grape is what makes it fresh to me. So I've got a bottle of uh, Domaine de Lamondine here. I've got a bottle of their Cote de Rhone white. So I think the blend here is slightly different. There's a bit more Viognier in this. It gives you that slightly oily texture, kind of mouth-coating texture, as well as that beautiful perfume.
0: Yeah, yeah. I, I think that's another thing. When you taste Viognier warm, it, has, it almost sticks to the mouth. Yeah, it's kind of resinous. It do, it doesn't go down lightly. It's like scrabbing on for dear life. <laughs> you go to somewhere like California or somewhere where they have these huge, giant fifteen and a half percenters of Viognier. It's almost all oil. It's just so oily. I mean, if you got and unless you can get it almost down to zero degrees, I find them almost impossible to swallow.
1: They need to be planted in slightly fresher sites, ideally maybe north facing or maybe with a bit of altitude. And and Domaine um, de Lamontin is actually based in in, um, in this white that we're drinking is just their Cote de They make some Cote de Village Séguré as well. Séguré has a bit of altitude there. And it's a lovely story, actually. It's, the wines are made by this guy called Alex Souter. He's an Englishman. So, how did he end up making the wines here? So, he actually grew up in South Africa and he grew up on Rustenburg estate in Stellenbosch. Oh, really? Yeah. And he was working in Gigondas. I think it was just like a year off. He was just like, um, helping out as a cellar hand or something like that. Goes to the local boulangerie to pick himself up a baguette or whatever, and looks behind the counter. Beautiful woman, love at first sight. Falls in love with the girl from the boulangerie. <laughs> so this is this is Sabine. It's a lovely story, and it turns out that her father owned this huge estate, Domaine de Lamondine, and it had been going. It's been going since like 1926, so it's nearly hundred years old. This estate, which isn't that unusual in the Southern Road. So Sabine, I think, is the fifth generation. So Alex and Sabine got together and now Alex, uh, Alex makes the wines there and he does a really good job. You
0: know, when you're looking along that sort of, that eastern, higher ridge of Cocherone, you do get that wonderful aridness as well as fruits, you know. There's no sugariness in the wine at all. The sweetness is almost perceived. You've got this lovely dry traction in the wine. You've got this lovely gentle texture and then you've got this seepage of kind of fresh apricot juice coming into your mouth from the wine uh, I, I just love those wines enormously coach your own whites i can only imagine that they will grow in volume and grow in numbers because there is something genuinely different and unique uh, certainly at the price um, of coach your own white and what it achieves i mean some quite delicious wines very versatile
1: absolutely and um i think you know they are seeing a lot of demand for the whites over there yeah i, I only expect them to 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 grow and grow
0: So tell me, um, I mean, you lived there for a while. I did, yeah. What were the best things about it? I mean, I, I, you know, wine accepted. Um, what what was your favourite food, for example?
1: Oh, the food. Oh, I miss the food. The food was so amazing. Do you know, there was a market near us, which is a short drive away. The thing that was so great about this market is it was open seven days a week and it was open in the evenings. It was all just um, local kind of small, small stands, small storeholders. Everything that they sold was picked on that day. So the freshness that you would get would be amazing, and you'd have one stand which just kind of, it would have you know, just artichokes, hundreds of artichokes all over the table, exactly. And um and and then you know earlier on in the year they'd just be there'd be the asparagus and things come so quick as well. The asparagus you know it's coming in in March, the strawberries coming in in March. And so you can actually live quite inexpensively down there and eat very, very well.
0: And I, I do love that whole sense of feeling in season. I think one of the things that learning about wine has given people is that sense of seasonality, which helps them with their food. When you know when things are fecund and green and buds are about to burst or when it's likely to be raining. And once you live that life, then you never get bored of food ever again. That, that whole culture is something which... In a place like London, it's very hard to feel that sense of seasonality because everything's available all the time.
1: Yeah, I mean, when you can pick up asparagus in December, uh, it's just a bit of a weird feeling. I mean, if you go to the supermarkets in France, you know, in December, and you say you've got any asparagus, they'll look at you as if you're completely mad.
0: Anyway, so, look, we, we've talked about rosé. Rosé's, I think a, lo- a lot of people may not be aware that, that one of the reasons for, for rosé production is to to concentrate and make a denser, maybe longer-lived red by by drawing some of the juice out, obviously, early on, the winemaking process, rosé, sénier, they can be just as delicious as purpose-built rosés. But it, it, when you look at our love for rosé in this country, people are quite happy to pay £14 pounds now for a bottle of Cote de Provence rosé, but they're still not happy to pay £14 pounds for a bottle of sparkling wine, which is a little bit crazy to me. And Cote de Rhone surely has this gigantic opportunity now. It
1: does, and it does things a little bit differently as well. I mean... So much rose these days, people say the first question is, is it pale? Is it dry? And I could understand the dry question. You want rose to be dry? Sure, you know, if you you want as it, an aperitif, tea, if you want it to work with certain food. But the colour, I mean, really, who cares? It's you know, the colour is it is irrelevant. It's what it tastes like, it's what it feels like that matters. And often in the room, they're just that little bit darker. And you know, for me, when I see a rose that's a little bit darker, I think, oh, okay, good. Because what it says to me is that chances are it's gonna have a little bit more character, it's gonna be a little bit more interesting, it's gonna have a little bit more flavor, and it's gonna have a little bit more texture and roundness and fruit, and that's what I often find in, in, in Cote de Rhone Rosés.
0: And I, th- I think that a lot of the reasons why people like pale rosé is because it doesn't offend them too much. In in some ways, it's the it's the texture, the low acid, I think the reflux is a thing, um, but I think it's the tastelessness that makes them popular. Um, you know, if you really love wine, you should be going for wine with a bit more character. And as you say, you know, you taste really, really great um, Cote de Rhone Rosé or, you know, I suppose the Jordan the Crown, Tavel Rosé. And you you get this, wonderful sensation of gastronomy with the wine you know you would need some saucisson with it or a little bit of cheese because it's it's got enough going on that you need to tame it with something and i think that's when rosé gets really interesting
1: exactly yeah and they do just go so much better with food as well they tend to have just a bit more texture i think that's one thing that grenache whether it's grenache blanc whether it's grenache gris or grenache noir it's something that um that you really that it that it brings to the party it can kind of talk a little bit about minerality, and it also has that richness of texture, which helps it work with, with different types of food.
0: Wonderful. Um, I'll tell you what, let's try a glass of red, shall we? Yeah, OK. I think if you've been going to wine shops and also premium supermarkets, um, this is a wine that people will see visually and go, I recognise that. And that's Cote Girone from Gigal. Quite an amazing family. And and I think Etienne Gigal, who was the founding member, made wine, you know, potted along, did his thing... And then when Marcel took over in the 60s, suddenly there was this explosion of interest, of research, trying to expand what they could do. Um, started buying up huge, you know, poorly managed or bankrupt estates. And before you knew it, he was a powerhouse, an empire, uh, in the Cochrane districts. And um, one thing that you can't say about his wines is they don't age. All his wines age. Even the cheapest wine, which is his, is good for five years, as I think we're hopefully we're about to prove, right?
1: Absolutely, yeah. I mean, the, the amount of Côte de Rhone they, they make is just mind-blowing. If you go and pay them a visit, there's these huge, huge tanks. And that's not always a good sign, you know, because when you're working on massive scale, it's difficult to really work with, you know, intense attention to detail, but they manage it. You know, they make the, the white Côte de Rhone, the red Côte de Rhone, the rosé Côte de Rhone. And often the, the red, they, they actually release after a few years because it does taste a little bit better with a few years behind it so you got the 2017 there haven't you? that's correct yes and that was a good it was quite a good year wasn't it 2017 it was a good year yeah i mean I had a, a run of good years to be honest you know 2015 was good 16 was good 17 was good 18 was a little bit more wobbly uh, it's kind of up and down some made good wines. some had a bit of trouble 19 is lovely and 2020 is looking good as well
0: yeah it's looking lovely um, the 2020 Rosa, uh, white wines and roses I've drunk I mean, just so delicious and so elegant, great elegance in the vintage, I think.
1: Yeah, it's a lot of freshness in 2020.
0: Right, so tell me a bit more about this. This is, in some ways, probably the most recognisable branded Coturian out there, I would say.
1: Yeah, I, I think it is, partly due to the enormous volumes that they make and also the reach that they have. So, you know, this is a one that you can find all over the world. So very, very easy to find, but very, very reliable. So it's a blend, you know, really kind of, it's a relatively classic blend. So it's got Syrah, Grenache and Mourvedre. Although most Cote de you will find it will be mostly Grenache. This actually has mostly Syrah, but they're based way up in the north of the Northern Rhone, you know, where they only grow Syrah. So, you know, Syrah is their, is their thing being based in on Puy where they are. Where would the
0: Syrah be being picked from? In, so to speak they it wouldn't be being picked in the areas around Arle and orange and, and and in the south they, are they actually picked up close to the Northern Rhone to the Northern Rhone sites like cornass and emmertage is that where the fruit comes from
1: well I mean there might be a little bit coming from the Northern Rhone but most of this will be coming from the Southern Rhone but they're quite careful in in the way that they um, that they select their fruit um, sometimes what they're doing is they're, they're buying from actually these more famous villages they know that the fruit's going to be particularly good, and they often have very, very long-established relationships with domains as well. Um, so they really get to know their strengths and you know how they can perhaps help them in certain ways if if, if they need that. As I was saying, mostly syrah, so you get a bit of more of that kind of slightly stricter, slightly more upright, tenser feel to the wine, to the wine that you get with syrah.
0: The syrah definitely provides you with a more linear, maybe higher acid, tarter, more. Paul Smith suit, less baggy trousers kind of flavour, you know, it's kind of it, it does have a um, quite an elegance, it does stand out doesn't it? The the, the Syrah has a very different shape
1: It, it does, yeah, and, and, and the way that it feels in the mouth is very different I think with Syrah, what you get is like a little kind of, you feel it in the centre of your tongue, the tannic structure there, and it's like a kind of tension in the middle of the mouth, whereas Grenache it kind of coats the inside of your mouth, it coats your your lips, your cheeks, and your tongue. So you feel it kind of all over your mouth. But as Syrah, it really kind of sits in the centre as a little kind of knot.
0: So I always think of Grenache as the... It's kind of the Mr. Blobby. It kind of It's broad and wide and cuddly and soft. It is.
1: It's a little bit kind of squishy.
0: If Syrah and Grenache were different chairs, this would be a Rennie Macintosh upright backright chair. And uh, Grenache would be like a beanbag. <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah. And I guess that's why they work so well together, because they complement each other so nicely. And actually, what I've, got, I've got another 2017 here, and it's the Chateau de Montfaucon, again, that we spoke about earlier. Um, so this is their straight Cote de Rhone again, 2017. And some people think, you know, Cote de Rhone you need to drink it straight away, you know, as soon as it's bottled. But that's not really the case. You know, this is only just coming to, into its own now. They've got some more interesting grapes here as well. So what's
0: in there? Because obviously Montfaucon were, were responsible for making this lovely white that I've been drinking with Claret in it. So one presumes that they'll be quite good at protecting some of those varieties. So, so what's in there?
1: Well, they've got a bit of Grenache Syrah and Morvedre, but it doesn't stop there. They've got Carignan, they've got Sanso, and they've got Cunoise as well. L- local grapes, you know, a bit of local character. And I think, you know, these these might be like minor grapes. There might not be like an awful lot of Cunoise planted in the southern range but actually it's grapes like these which really kind of bring the the place into your glass.
0: Yes, absolutely. There is a sense of place, a real sense of seasoning about the way that those, those, those varieties work. I, I've only ever had quinoirs as a single variety wine once and I'm pretty sure it was from Bokerstel. Chateau Bocastel used to release a straight cunoise, only for two or three years yeah and it wasn't successful so they decided not to do it in the end and it had phenomenal acidity and it had this unbelievable almost teeth-chatteringly spicy peppery note to it which was quite stunning and it was a wine that when you taste it you really felt yeah. I can see this just, this is, if you have too many guys like this in a party, then it's, it's, a, it's a noisy party. And, and Cunoise, for want of a sake of argument, if, if there was ever a grape variety that wore a beret and smoked filter cigarettes, it's
1: Cunoise. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it really is. It just takes you takes you there straight away. And it's, it's also, it's little grapes like this, which um, are going to be so beneficial as the climate gets warmer as well, because these are grapes that they retain their acidity, even when they get very ripe, they have that peppery freshness, their aromatic freshness, and um a bit less alcohol as well. So you, you start growing a little bit more kunoirs in the blend, and you can help kind of help the wine settle down a little bit if it's heating up too much.
0: And I, I think that, that there have been um also on the white cocherone side of things, same deal. You know, you look at those varieties which can retain a bit more acidity. Um, I was just thinking like Domaine Sancom, Cocherone Blanc, is about ten, fifteen percent pickpool, which is a master stroke. It just keeps the whole thing fresh. And Coonoise does the same thing in a red one, I guess. As, I suppose, you know, when you look at things like Syrah, which is obviously the same grape variety as Shiraz, if you plant it somewhere hot, it behaves hot if you plant it somewhere more linear and cooler, whether you might have cooler evenings like you would in the in the, in the steeper valleys of the Northern Rhone, then you start to see that very refreshing, very dry, very tight lip side to the variety, which takes a long time to come out in age in the wine, I think. you know, But when you drink really, really big, powerful Shiraz and a really, really elegant, peppery, perfumed Shiraz, the Northern Rhone, and you age those wines for 10, 20 years, they kind of migrate towards each other a little bit it's almost like it doesn't really matter where they came from you can't hide the Syrah in the Syrah do you know what I mean
1: that's it but the the interesting thing about Syrah is it's adaptability you get these different expressions but you know they're kind of equally interesting you know if for for different palettes so that's you know one of the strengths of Syrah
0: I think well for those people those wine nerds out there the story was always with Syrah is it is it a whole bunch or is it not a whole bunch and uh, for those people that want to understand what I just said, um, when you when you pick grapes, you pick grapes in bunches. Now, the choice is you either pull all of those grapes off that bunch using a device called an agrafoie fouloir, or you put the whole bunch of grapes in the tank, just like that. And you end up with two very, very different results. I'm for a whole bunch. When you drink those wines, the tannins are so soft, it's almost like being under one of those... Rain showers in a five star hotel. They have these big drops of water that hit you. There's no edge. There's no sharpness. You just feel drenched in flavor with these whole bunch of wines. And I, and I think that that's when Syrah really, really starts to do its business.
1: Yeah, it used to be the way. It used to be the way they used to make um wines all over the Rhone, particularly in the northern road I mean, they only invented the Igrapois in the like 1960s. So you know, we've we've actually only been destemming for a very short period of time. If they've been making wine for two thousand years. So um, that was always the way. And uh, it's coming back because it's, it gives the wines, when you, when you keep the stems, it gives the wines a bit more freshness, a bit more perfume. can actually help reduce alcohol a little bit, just about half a degree, but that, that can make all the difference.
0: In a region that's so clearly capable of making wines at 16% alcohol, I've you've given me five wines, you've sent me five wines here, they're all rich, complex, age-worthy wines, and none of these that you've sent me, I don't know if you realise this, are over 13.5%.
1: I have got one wine here which is fourteen point five percent. I tend to not look at the alcohol until after I've tasted because often you just don't notice. And if you if it's all integrated into the wine, it doesn't actually really matter. If it doesn't stick out, then it's it's not a big problem. But this is the Le Bois de Dantel, and it, it's from um, Côte de Rennes village, Plan de Dieu. So right slap bang in the middle of the main growing
0: area. And, and, uh, and red wines only, yeah, isn't it?
1: Red wines only, yeah, exactly. And so this is, it's almost entirely Grenache. There's a little bit of little bit of Syrah, a little bit of More yes. Uh It's organic. And it's made by this guy um, called David Gugge. And I think he only has, like, a tiny little vineyard to himself. So he makes this wine himself. But the wine is lovely. And often, you know... In the really kind of the hot bits of the Southern Rhone, in a really hot vintage, these the wines can get very, very big. But this, yeah, it's a twenty nineteen vintage, which was quite a hot, dry vintage. But still, it has this elegance, this real lightness. You, you you pour the wine; it's transparent in the glass, and has this lovely, lovely juiciness. I really, really enjoy it.
0: And I do, I do love these stories of like the one man band, He's eighty years old. He's got his horse. You know, and they just get on with it. It's just wonderful, wonderful stories. ask me often not which region of France they want to drink from or you know where do I like in France but why France and I think it's important for people to know that there is something quintessentially French about French wines and there is something very attractive about that and it is the identity it's the individuality it's the sense that when you ask them, well, why is that wine on one side of the road 15 euros and the wine on the other side of the road 20 euros? They're opposite each other. The vineyards are opposite each other and there's a road going through the middle. Why? They don't think for a second that's an issue. One is more po- one is more popular, so they're probably charging a bit more money for it. Um, and it may not be anything other than the fact that he has better advertising. It might not even be a better wine. And I love the fact that when you go to somewhere... Even somewhere like we have quite large open landscapes where the vineyards aren't quite as intensely planted as they are in, let's say, parts like of Bordeaux, for example. You know, you, you go down a cycle route and you might meet somebody who's 27 years old, who's managed to inherit a couple of he- hectares of vineyards off a, off a of a of a family member, or has just gra- just graduated um, as a mature student because he decided he wanted to be a winemaker and not a banker and bought some land. And then next to that, there's a guy who's 86 years old with his bicycle. His family are all in the grave, but he Carries on like he always used to, and that's France. That for me, that's absolutely France. The the, the complete disassociation between one space or another, and they could be two meters apart, and I love that. The variety, it's fantastic.
1: And and you've really um, described the Rhone to me a little bit there as well. It's um, I mean, this is the reason that I've I kind of fell in in love with the Rhone in particular. I think it's because of the people. You know, these are just real people, with genuine individuals farming their patch of land, making the wines themselves, selling it themselves. When you go and visit a big domain down there or any size of domain, you know, what you'll meet the guy that, that owns it, that makes the wine, he he prunes the vines, does pretty much everything, you know, and it's been owned, it's been in the same family for, for a long time, you know. And, and this this is typical. Some in other regions, sometimes you'll meet the winemaker, maybe he's worked there for a couple of years, he'll work there for another couple of years, then he'll get a job somewhere else. Or you'll meet the owner who's never touched a grape in his life, you know, but he just owns the estate. But what's so nice about the Rhone is that people just kind of do everything. You know, it's often in the family. And, um, and, and that's what's so, so appealing to me. It's, very, it's all very much on a human scale.
0: Absolutely. I'm just opening the last bottle of wine that you've, um, you've so kindly sent me. And it's another Coach de Rhone White. It's from Chateau de Montfran. The wine is called A La Reverie. Uh, and it's 2019, so it's a year... 2019, obviously, I think was it was very warm, wasn't it, 2019? But in a nice way, but but made delicious red wines. But this wine, I can't tell you. I poured this wine in a glass. It's got genuine colour to it. So it's got a kind of a, a, a deep, tarnished brass colour almost to it. And when I smell it, I can smell... Grenache, possibly Grenache gris, Grenache blanc. These spicy end, like spiced poached pears of Grenache blanc, and then there's a smell which I can only assume, and I could be, I could be completely wrong, but if, I, if I'm a betting man, there's Bourboulenc in here, which is another variety that that we just touched on earlier, and and Bourboulenc is a variety which again gives Rhone wines, white Rhone wines, that that quintessential spice that they're defined by. It's almost like It's almost like somebody sprinkled dry-roasted peanuts into the drink. There's a peanutty spice to
1: it. I know what you mean. And it's the salt from the peanut as well. That's what you get with the Bourboulon.
0: Oh, Matt, I've just tasted it, and it's got this gorgeous saline, silky mouthfeel. It's like drinking Vichy water and Cochurin at the same time.
1: It's actually delicious. Wow, this wine's gorgeous. (laughs) It's a really, really lovely estate, actually. They're they're down right down the south. Everyone listening to this
0: can hear your passion for the subject, the passion for all things Roan, um, the food, the climate, the people, um, the whole huge diversity of wine that we've just tasted in just the last half hour. But uh, thanks again for coming on the podcast, Matt, and uh, I hope we do this again soon.
1: That's an absolute pleasure. Thanks for having me, Joe.
0: You're very welcome.